This is a codicil to my last will, to the effect that the group of pictures now at the London National Gallery, which I had bequeathed to that institution, I now bequeath to the City of Dublin, providing that a suitable building is provided for them within five years of my death. The group of pictures I have lent to Belfast I give to the Municipal Gallery in Harcourt Street. If a building is provided within five years, the whole collection will be housed together. The sole trustee in this question is to be my aunt, Lady Gregory. She is to appoint any additional trustees she may think fit. I also wish that the pictures now on loan at this gallery remain as my gift. Oh yes, certainly. I, I knew him. We met. Uh, I was about 12. I started at Christie's and he, had, uh, he was nine years older. And he was then working for a man named Carnegie, Martin Carnegie, who had a gallery in, in uh, Armel. Uh, I think he worked there a year, and then he broke away. And in ten years, he, uh, he must have amassed a considerable fortune for those days. Of course, we couldn't say it was a fortune today, uh, but he did. And he was able, uh, with the money that he collected, uh, not only to buy old pictures, but also modern pictures, which never, modern pictures he never sold. Uh, he bought them for, for the, the creation of the Dublin Gallery, if you know. And uh, uh, I think it was remarkable that the, the, the man had, in so short a time, at that period, uh, without any academic training, should have acquired, with his natural flair, such wonderful pictures. I mean, you see them around this gallery. Uh, Lane uh, worked and saved and collected uh, for, for Ireland. There's no question. I mean, we all agree that. Yeah. Therefore, I'm quite sure that if Lane uh, could have his wish, that all the pictures would be back here. Sir Alec Martin talking to Terence Devere White in 1965 about his friendship with Hugh Lane, a man whose whole life was surrounded by the sort of controversy which was only equalled by that which followed his untimely death on board the Lusitania in 1915. Sixty-five years have elapsed since Lane's passing, but the years have done little to diminish anything but the heat of an issue which has become a perennial bone of contention between the governments of Great Britain and Ireland, namely the fate of the 39 modern continental pictures which make up the core of the sizeable collection amassed by Lane during his lifetime. The controversy no longer arouses the bitterness and invective of the 1920s, but while some of the passion has abated, the commitment of the representatives of both nations to becoming the ultimate custodian of the collection has not. The most recent settlement, arrived at late last year between the directors of the Dublin and London National Galleries, has effectively put into cold storage for 14 years the question of a final settlement. Perhaps the time has come for a re-examination of the chequered, if fascinating, history of the Lane bequest, an assessment of the status quo and an analysis of what the future holds for this collection. We begin the story with the life of Lane himself in the company of Dr James White, former director of the National Gallery and art historian Kieran McGonagall. Hugh Lane was the son of uh, a parson, the Reverend J.W. Lane, uh, and his uh, wife Adelaide Purse, who was a sister of Lady Gregory's. They lived in County Cork and Lane was born there in 1875. His parents became estranged, and uh, his mother took him to England when he was 16, where he got a year's teaching as a picture restorer, and then he became a sort of apprentice dealer when he was about 17. 
He was extremely successful. He had a brilliant eye. He had a marvelous gift for it. And at the age of 21, he had made enough money to more or less retire from picture dealing and work as a gentleman dealer in a private flat in German Street in London, where uh, he became indeed a figure in society, very elegant and well-dressed, could speak a bit of French and could play the piano with very late education, but with a splendid sort of capacity to present himself. It happened that there was a big country house coming up for sale and some pictures were advertised and Lane went down to see if he could uh, buy some of them. He borrowed some few pounds off his, off his mother. And there was a picture there and some of the dealers indicated to him that he should perhaps um, wait after the auction and not bid at the auction for the picture. After the auction, the group of dealers met. It's called the ring. It's supposed to be illegal, but it's believed to still exist in certain places. And they proceeded to auction the picture amongst themselves. Lane stayed virtually as the last man in, but won. And when it had reached hundreds of pounds, um, he then called it in and left as well. The following Sunday, he went round to the house of the principal dealer of the group and got his uh, payola from this deal. And that set him off with a few hundred pounds on the road to being a very important dealer. How important a dealer was he? Well, it was always said of Lane that he could go into a gallery in one end of Bond Street, take a picture out on spec and walk down the street and sell it to the next gallery for a great profit and then give back the original money to the gallery and still have money in hand. He had virtually no education. He was almost illiterate. He read with difficulty and wrote with even greater difficulty, which was to compound things later on in his life, at least for, as far as Ireland was concerned. But he had an extraordinary sense of, of, of things and could frequently fi make finds when other dealers had simply passed them over. His success was based on his ability to see paintings and identify paintings. Completely. There's a case in point where there was a Romney uh, being offered for sale, but it was in fact being offered as, as a Lawrence. It's a picture now in the National Gallery of Ireland of Mrs. Taylor. And Lane bought the picture at auction, saying it was Romney, not Lawrence, and proceeded there and then to wipe away the paint. He'd brought some turpentine with him for the purpose. The other dealers were horrified, and of course when he wiped away the top layer of paint, it was revealed as a Romney underneath. Reason being that Mrs. Taylor had in fact had herself repainted in a more modern style, and he alone had recognised it. It was after amassing a considerable fortune that Lane rediscovered his Irish origins. Inviting himself over to Cool Park, he became associated with Lady Gregory's circle of acquaintances, where it's recorded that initially his relationship with the poet W.B. Yeats was characterised by a mutual dislike. This antipathy did not endure for long, and indeed it was Yeats, among others, who persuaded Lane to turn his considerable critical and organisational talents to the benefit of his native land. The assembling of a collection of old masters for the Royal Hibernian Academy in 1903, followed by the organisation of an exhibition of the works of Irish artists in the Guildhall in London the following year, seemed to have aroused in Lane an almost missionary zeal. In the catalogue for the Guildhall exhibition, he expounds for the first time the aspiration which was to dominate his life for the next ten years, the establishment of a gallery of modern art in Dublin. We have in the Dublin National Gallery a collection of the works of the Old Masters which it would be hard to match in the United Kingdom outside London. But there is not, in Ireland, one single accessible collection or masterpiece of modern or contemporary art. A gallery of Irish and modern art in Dublin would create a standard of taste and a feeling of the relative importance of painters. This would encourage the purchase of pictures, for people will not purchase where they do not know. 
Such a gallery would be necessary to the student if we are to have a distinct school of painting in Ireland, for it is one's contemporaries that teach one the most. I and my friends look forward to having in Dublin, sooner or later, a gallery where, if possible, the works of all great contemporaries may be hung. We have had promises of a picture from many of the painters exhibiting at the Guildhall. The finding of a site and of a building in Dublin should be the lesser part of our task. It was to be some years before Lane appreciated the full irony of that last sentence, but at the time he threw himself into a self-appointed task with his customary vigour. He bought from uh, Durand Ruel, who was the great Impressionist dealer, a number of very important pictures, and at about the same time, or just before that, uh, Mr Stats Forbes, a big coll great collector of, of pictures in England, had died with a lot of uh, pictures, Bobby's own pictures, which had come on the market, the first of the big open-air schools of painting in, 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 in European art of the 19th century. And Lane persuaded the executors to send them to Dublin and either to buy some of them himself or to persuade others to buy them. The reason being he felt that a, a modern art gallery was more important uh, than a national gallery in the sense that the national gallery was the reservoir or the granary, but the modern art school was the cornfield and that the living were in that sense more important than the dead. And of course at that time remember that pictures painted in 1850 would have been regarded as modern pictures at that time. Nowadays the time element has been kaleidoscope, but then it was regarded as modern, very shockingly modern as well. So the pictures came to Dublin. Then of course the usual thing started, if you start anything in the public in Dublin of course you were into trouble. Uh, he fell foul of William Martin Murphy and the Irish Independent which is now celebrating its 75th uh, Jubilee, just then founded, um, not least of because he had the support of the trade unions. His work alternatively was viewed as communist and seditious or Protestant and seditious, uh, so that it, all those kind of difficulties uh, were involved in it. But in any event, he persuaded quite a number of people to make these gifts of the pictures, several, about 300 pictures were assembled, of the first, shall we say, gift, that is to say the Stats Forbes pictures and certain other pictures which he persuaded Irish and English artists uh, to present. He even got the President of the United States of America to send a subscription and so on. In addition to persuading others to become benefactors, Lane himself set about acquiring a group of 39, mainly French Impressionist pictures, which would comprise the core of the contemporary gallery's collection. His gift of these particular paintings bore only one proviso, namely the acquisition or erection of a suitable building to house them. All along, Lane's motives were altruistic, but given his reputation as a clever dealer and the notorious reluctance of Irish society to honour its own, he was not without his detractors. Lane had uh, persuaded, I think, the King of England to buy this particular coral to present to the gallery. And this, shortly afterwards, there was a, a critical outcry saying the picture wasn't right. And Lane wanted to ensure that the king's name would not be associated with the picture that was in doubt. So he transferred the purchase of it to the committee of the gallery, which had been formed. So, in fact, it was no longer the king, but the committee of the art gallery which bought this particular picture. And when these pictures were being put on view in the National Museum, where um, Colonel Plunkett was then the director, uh, Plunkett, knowing the controversy, and hearing that it was thought that this picture was painted by a Hungarian called, called Medzeli, who had been a pupil of Koro in London, um, obtained a photograph of the large painting by Medzeli, which the small so-called Koro was a sketch, and he pasted it up in the museum for the public to see. And this was, can be taken as an attack on 
Lane's integrity as a dealer, which it was, and it can also be taken as an attempt on the part of Plunkett to prevent Lane from being appointed as director of the National Museum, which Lane hoped would happen when the forthcoming vacancy was filled. And as, a, as you know, it was a Count Plunkett who succeeded uh, Colonel Plunkett as director of the National Museum. As we've seen, Lane anticipated no great difficulty about the provision of a permanent site for the collection. Sadly, his optimism was to prove ill-founded. Lane, first of all, thought that a new gallery should be built. He had, at his own, his own expense, re rented Clonmel House and housed the collection there, but of course it wasn't suitable for, uh, for that sort of thing. And um, he then commissioned Edward Edwin Luttians, the great English architect, to make a, a, a design for the gallery. He was keen on the idea of something like the Luxembourg, a small gallery in a small park, accessible to the people. Uh, Lord Ardalon, member of the Guinness family, who'd given Stevens Green to the public, had retained certain powers of veto over it and was opposed to the building of the gallery on the site that Lane proposed, which was more or less where Lord Ardalon's statue now sits, uh, almost opposite the College of Surgeons. Um, on the other hand, his cousin, the Lord Ivor, was in favour of it, uh, but Lord Ivy was the chairman of the company. There may have been those kind of inter-family uh, difficulties, apart from the sighting of Lord Ardalon's rather monstrous statue. Uh, also, the city council felt they weren't going to have, as they said at the time, a bloody Dutchman building uh, buildings for them. Luttians was by descent Dutch. It was one of those peculiarities. Uh, so the very fine designs were scrapped. And eventually Lane decided that, yes, well, in that case, they would build across the Liffey. Now, this is where he really ran into trouble, because it was pointed out to him by the Irish Independent that nobody went across the river except the workers. And Lane said, well, that was the whole idea, that the workers would, in fact, A, build the gallery, and B, that they would then walk, go across this sort of gallery built in the form of a bridge gallery, rather like the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, and that uh, the workers would benefit by seeing the pictures. Both the Irish Independent and the Catholic papers of the day, like the Standard and so on, said, well, if the workers were educated beyond that station life to which God seemed fit to call them, who then would work? And since, unfortunately for Lane, both Larkin and Connolly greatly approved of the scheme because it would give employment and then education, of course, it was seen as a communist plot. The issue of the Lane collection quickly acquired the status of a cause. Ac accusation and recrimination became the order of the day. On many occasions, Slane threatened to withdraw his 39 modern continental pictures. Ultimatum followed ultimatum until 1913, when Lane, totally disillusioned with the apparent paralysis of Dublin Corporation, dispatched the pictures on loan to the National Gallery in London. Later that year, he drew up his last will and testament. I bequeath my sergeant portrait and any modern pictures of merit that I possess to the Dublin Gallery of Modern Art other than the group of pictures lent by me to the London National Gallery, which I bequeath to form a collection of modern continental art in London. I bequeath the remainder of my painting to the National Gallery of Ireland, instead of to the Dublin Modern Art Gallery, which I considered so important for the founding of an Irish school of painting. To be invested and the income to be spent on buying pictures of deceased painters of established merit. I hope that this alteration from the Modern Gallery to the National Gallery will be remembered by the Dublin Municipality and others as an example of its want of public spirit in the year 1913 and for the folly of such bodies assuming to decide on questions of art instead of relying on expert opinion. Lane's flirtation with the London National Gallery, however, proved to be as inauspicious as his dealings with Dublin Corporation. 
the trustees wrote to Lane and said, well, they would really rather like to make a reselection from amongst the pictures offered. Lane was livid. He was away in America at that time on his first crucial visit, and he said, well, if there'd been any question of a selection, a reselection being made, he wouldn't ever agree to lend them. And the trustees then went on to say, and in any event, they would only hang the reselected pictures on condition that it was stipulated legally that they would be bequeathed to them in the event of Lane's death. Lane said he had no intention of making any such stipulation. Uh, Lane had, in 1914, was appointed director of the National Gallery of Ireland, which was the great ambition of his life, to be no longer a dealer in commerce, but to be now the director of a great gallery, and therefore to have all the standing in, as an art historian, which he, would, he greatly desired. He'd already given wonderful gift to the National Gallery in many ways, and um, he loved the National Gallery, and he was now director of, his, of the gallery of his own country. So all the bitterness dissolved. And when he was asked to go and give evidence in a court case in America in 1915, in the middle of the war, with uh, all the disasters that were occurring in the Atlantic, he realized that this was extremely dangerous. So before he left the gallery, he wrote a codicil to his will, revoking his intention to leave the 39 pictures to London and stating clearly that he wished them to be left to the, to, to the gallery in Dublin. And that if they did not, in fact, build a gallery to house his collection, they would then come to the National Gallery of Ireland. I remember discussing the thing going up. I was the last person who saw him in this country, as you know. I, well, before he, before I went, I, went I was in the train with him. We went up to Liverpool, and uh, although he didn't tell me that he'd uh, uh, made a codicil, he, he left no doubt in my mind that he had changed his views and that the pictures were meant for Dublin. There's no question about that. Was he nervous going? Because that was the middle of the war. Yes, he did. We got up to Liverpool, and it was a foggy morning. I remember and. Uh, rumours were that German submarines were at the mouth, and he was frightfully nervous. He only went to, he only went to uh, America because he was broke as far as money was concerned, and he'd been offered a fee to, to, uh, to um, an insurance company to assess certain damages to the pictures that belonged to, later, that belonged to Levine, that had gone over, and Levine had made a claim. He signed each page of the codicil, and I believe understood that this was legal because at the time a serving war officer could sign a codicil to his will without having it witnessed but unfortunately Lane was not a serving war officer he was just director of the National Gallery of Ireland and he was drowned coming back from America in the Lusitania. Lane's untimely death and his failure to have the codicil signed meant that the will which he had executed in 1913 was legally valid and the National Gallery in London was legitimately entitled to retain the paintings. If the British authorities were perhaps somewhat embarrassed by their good fortune in those early years after Lane's death, it was never manifested in any attempt to divest themselves of their windfall. Irish protests of a moral claim to the paintings were as frequent as they were unsuccessful. One of the stipulations in Lane's codicil was that the, the, the corporation should make an effort within seven years of his death to provide a suitable home to house all the pictures and subs subject to that then the pictures should come back. You have to remember that there was the European uh, war followed by the 1916, followed by the subsequent war of independence, followed by the civil war. So it wasn't in fact until 1924 that uh, the government were in a position to do anything about a building. Sarah Purser persuaded uh, W.T. Cosgrave president of the Executive Council of the Free State to give Charlemont House 
uh, to the City of Dublin as a building suitable for holding the Lane collection. From the moment of Lane's death, Lady Gregory, his executrix and his sister, Mrs Shine, of course, had promptly laid claim to the pictures on behalf of Dublin. No time was lost in establishing the claim. That claim, of course, was denied by England and they said they couldn't overturn a will and so on. It was pointed out that they'd done exactly that in the case of Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes had left a number of uh, bequests in his will stipulating that monies should go to, to German students. The British government, on the outbreak of hostilities, uh, suppressed that part of his will. So exigency and political contingency <laughs> and a moral position are not very good uh, because the, the political contingency will always win out over moral superiority. Frequent attempts were made to change the attitude of the National Gallery. The question was raised in the English Parliament. A commission of inquiry even went so far as to find that when Lane drew up the codicil, he was under the impression that he was making a legal testament. The paintings, however, remained in London. Gradually, as some of the more vociferous champions of the Irish case, such as Lady Gregory and Yeats, died, the clamour for the return of the collection diminished. The matter seemed closed, until the end of the 1950s, when two occurrences dredged up the whole affair. The first, unknown to the general public at the time, was the opening of secret negotiations with a view to reaching some permanent settlement concerning the pictures. The second was rather more dramatic and involved Paul Hogan, a young Dublin art student, and the temporary disappearance of one of the paintings, the Morisot, from the Tate Gallery in London. At that time, uh, the paintings in the major galleries tend to be hung on chains, on hooks on the walls. I mean, no one would do this now in the right mind. They are properly screwed to the walls. But the paintings were hung on chains, and provided you could unhook it, it was relatively easy to take it off the wall. And uh, But taking it out of the gallery was uh, something else again. And uh, the approach we adopted was the most obvious one of the... Know, the theory that uh, normal behaviour attracts no attention and um, I was remember, a law student and I had a portfolio and I had established certain not rights in the gallery but I had been working there for some days and I was a familiar figure so I uh, was allowed to move uh, through the gallery and um, extraordinarily actually out of the gallery with this valuable painting. What did you intend doing with the painting? Uh, ultimately, of course, we intend to give it back because the intention was uh, purely to attract attention and attract uh, publicity. We expected to be apprehended, my friend and I, uh, and to our surprise, we were not apprehended. And uh, at that point, you could say that the plan went seriously awry. We actually got away with it and showed a clean pair of heels to the gallery and uh, to anyone who was um, in pursuit. But the intention was to protect the publicity uh, and uh, the, to get uh, public bodies interested in passing votes and that sort of thing. And that we, I'd say, were entirely successful. What exactly was the outcome of the escapade? Well, uh, someone uh, summarized it, I think, uh, Lennox Robinson wrote at the time very amusingly about it, and he was one of the very few people who indicated any support. In fact, the only people I can remember writing or commenting in any way favourable, favourably, were Lennox Robinson and uh, my professor of painting, the late Sean Keating. And I always felt that with two defenders like that, where you can really take on quite a bit of opposition. But um, um, 
the outcome was publicity, I presume. Outcome was uh, was publicity. Um, I, I very interestingly, I I say that uh, many county councils passed uh, votes of demanding the return of the paintings, to, and um, in many county councils, this is probably the first time that a matter of art occupied their attention before or since. So it had certain beneficial passing effects in that regard. I think that it uh, hastened the settlement. Uh, as we subsequently learned, uh, negotiations were well in train at that stage, and Lauren Moyne had been uh, very active, and the Prime Minister of the day, John Kostler, had taken an interest, but this was unknown to me at the time. And I think it, it made the eventual settlement, which was arrived at the, the sort of painting-sharing affair, uh, more rapidly arrived at than it might have been, I think. Well, that agreement was brought about by goodwill on the English part, who uh, decided that the, uh, the moral case for Ireland was a strong one, and therefore they would like to meet us by allowing half the pictures to come on loan to Dublin for a five-year period. At the end of that five-year period, those first half would be returned to London and the second half would come to Dublin. This was to be done for 20 years on four or five-year periods. And this way, we would see the 39 pictures in halves. Who negotiated the agreement? Lord Longford, Lord Moyne, and Professor Bodkin, with the trustees of the London National Gallery, who are the owners of the picture legally. Was this seen as a major breakthrough at that time? It was a major breakthrough. It was the first time that the uh, people of Ireland uh, had seen the pictures since they went to London in 1913. Um, the agreement was to last for 20 years. In this uh, last year, 1979, you were involved in the negotiation of a new arrangement. Can you tell me a little bit about that arrangement? Yes, well, it was rather simple. In the tea shop, the then tea shop, um, Mr. Lynch asked me to discuss the matter with the trustees of the London National Gallery. And as it happened, I have very good relations. Been here for the last 16 years. I've got a built up a very good relationship with my opposite number in London, Michael Levy, of whom I'm very fond, and his chairman. Professor John Hale of London University, who, who uh, was acting for the board. And I met them on a number of occasions, and um, they came over here, in fact. Uh, we had several meetings. The main motive behind the desire of the trustees of the London National Gallery to bring about a new agreement was their feeling that five-year changes were far too frequent and bad for the pictures, that one shouldn't be moving important pictures so much. And secondly, uh, after much discussion, uh, it was possible to persuade them that they didn't really need the less important pictures, so that therefore they should uh, be prepared to ensure that the majority of the pictures, which were not necessary to London's collection, should be left here in Ireland. Uh, we therefore negotiated an agreement covering 14 years, uh, in which uh, 30 of the pictures would be in Dublin and eight of them in London. The eight which London wanted were specifically to fill gaps in their own collection. One picture was at issue, that was Renoir's Le Parapluie. It is regarded as the great masterpiece of the collection and worth nearer to two million pounds than one million pounds. And uh, London wanted it. And then they wanted to, let, to not be ungenerous, and they were prepared to let us have it for a short spell, 
But we held out and we pressurized them and we kept not giving in until finally they agreed to us having Les Parapluies for the first seven of the 14 years and they would have it for the second seven. So that was the final agreement, which I regarded as generous on their part. After the 14 years, what happens to the collection? After the 14 years, a new discussion will arise. It is agreed that there's nothing final about this and London has also agreed that it would be prepared to lend at any time some of the eight pictures to Dublin if required for a special exhibition. Uh, they want to make it perfectly clear that they're not sort of clinging to them and uh, they made themselves it seems to me anyhow extremely generous in their approach. They saw it seems to me our moral claim and they felt it. Naturally they couldn't uh, put it into words but I got a strong feeling from both my friends that at the end of 14 years if the situation between our two countries improves the prospects of a better settlement is also around the corner. As with all agreements, objections must be anticipated. Critics of the 1979 arrangement, however, seem to voice their reservations more than their outright opposition. The general consensus seems to be one of acceptance, albeit in some cases reluctant. Brian Fallon, as Irish Times art correspondent, and Ethna Waldron, as curator of the Hugh Lane Gallery, have a professional interest in the settlement. I think we've done the best possible bargain we could. There are certain pictures I regret. Uh, I suppose the Renoir, the Paracruy, it's not one of my favourite Renoirs, but it's a very familiar and very famous picture. What I regret most is the, the We Are Still Life, uh, which was the only really genuinely advanced picture which Lane bought. Well, that doesn't matter now because We Are in turn has become an old master, but it was a, a very good picture and it's the one I regret most. But I still think we've done very well. We've got the best possible bargain we, will, we, we could have done, in my opinion. Um, if you were the director of the London National Gallery or the Tate Gallery, would you consider that you had done well in hanging on to the particular paintings that, uh, that England has hung on to? Most certainly. If they have their... Uh, they, they place a great deal of emphasis, again, on building up a collection of Impressionists. Uh, they have a number of key Impressionist pictures. It's always been a school which has been popular in England. As I say, once, it, once, it, it, once it was recognised at all, which did happen a little late in the day, but once it did, they bought very good Impressionist pictures, and uh, this, this, will, this will enhance them. How important are the eight pictures which they're retaining? How important are they to the actual core of their own collection, their own collection of Impressionist paintings? Pretty important. Perhaps not uh, quite as important as people would think in 50 years' time, because, as I've said before more than once, uh, the, Impressionist, the Impressionists tend to overshadow other 19th-century schools. But that, that is, a, 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 that is a, an idea which is fading. We just see them now as part of the, part of the 19th century scene. Therefore, to what extent would you think that the uh, English, it is the English policy to simply divest themselves of paintings which aren't uh, necessarily filling gaps in their own collection? And to what extent are they just palming off um, 31 paintings? Or whatever no, there's very few that, that you could talk about palming off. There's a lot of very, very good paintings in it. Lane and Orpen, you or, must remember that Lane bought to a great extent on Orpen's advice, but Lane basically, though, though not a man for modern art, essentially he was basically an old master man. He, he had a real feeling for it, and he bought, with few exceptions, he bought very good works. And we mustn't think we're being palmed off, because after all, to, to, to own four courbets is a thing which the, any of the greatest galleries in, in Europe would, would give their eye teeth for. Well, initially, I suppose, when I heard about it, I thought it was a great deal, but having uh, hung the pictures now and been looking at them, I suppose I have certain reservations about it. What are short, the shortcomings of the deal? Well, it does seem to me that perhaps um, some of the major pictures are being 
kept in London. But uh, all in all, I think I'd be satisfied for the moment anyway with the arrangement. How do you react to criticism of the agreement? Um, you mean that we have... Uh, well, specifically criticism that the eight paintings retained by, the, by London are the cream of the collection and that the arrangement over the Palapuri is not perhaps the best arrangement. Well, of course, I think it's very easy to criticise any arrangement that has been arrived at, and I suppose no matter what um, had been arranged, there would be some criticism. I feel that in this case, um, the commissions of the public works, they had a representative, uh, Mr White, uh, from the National Gallery, who went and made this arrangement, and I think, in fact, I'm sure that he did his very best, and that this is probably the best arrangement that could have been arrived at at this time. The shortcomings in the arrangement are simply that we don't have all the 39 pictures. Short of that, I don't think we could expect a lot more, because uh, I suspect that we will eventually uh, achieve their agreement to us having all the pictures when it becomes part of a much bigger settlement about the political uh, situation in this country. And um, under the present circumstances, it seems to me we've probably not doing too badly. How do you react to criticism of the deal? I uh, naturally expect it, and I naturally think it's justified. It's always possible to criticize any arrangement anyone makes, but it also has to be seen that if you're a negotiating body, you can't achieve everything. You're, you achieve as much as you can. But naturally, I accept uh, criticism, and uh, anything short of everything is not enough. Dr White appears optimistic that ultimately all 39 lane paintings will revert to Ireland. If this indeed proves to be the case, it may have the effect of opening up a further debate in this country as to the best possible home for the paintings. The Municipal Gallery at the moment, as I see it, has no definite role. It hasn't decided whether it's being an active modern gallery or whether it's being a, a static collection to go and browse in, say, like the Courtauld Institute in London. Uh, if it loses the lane pictures at the end of seven years or whatever it is and they go to the National Gallery, it is very little left. The whole core of its raison d'etre at the moment will collapse. To what extent do you agree with criticism that it should be a, um, a gallery for con purely contemporary art and that therefore that the lane collection is out of place in the Municipal Gallery? Well, it's argued that the lane collection would be out of place because the painters now are, a lot of them, a century old or nearly. And uh, in, in, in England, the, the Tate, after a certain lapse of time, sends its pictures on to the National Gallery. Uh, the, our municipal gallery, gallery does the same thing. It passed on most of its, Osborne, its Osbournes and Hones and, and Jack Yeats's onto the, onto the National Gallery. It has kept a certain core of Jack Yeats' paintings. But um, just, just uh, I, what, the national, what the municipal gallery should be, it could be a number of things, but it should define what, is, what it wants to be. At the moment, it's just nothing at all. I think that the uh, Municipal Gallery is a, a gallery of modern art for the city of Dublin. And these paintings, which um, were, uh, at the turn of the century, modern paintings, uh, most of the painters were contemporaries of Hugh Lane, who was born, let's remember, about, I think, 1875. Um, and these paintings were painted between that date and the end of the century, were very modern, and they belonged in a modern gallery. They don't uh, today. I would like to see them uh, as a collection exhibited together in a special gallery, a special lane gallery, which could perhaps be 
uh, more specifically, uh, one of the great or major Dublin houses, where they could be shown in a domestic setting with furniture, with carpets, with wall hangings and so on. Because remember, most of the paintings now, not the, obviously some, like the Pouvidish uh, van martyrdom, are very large paintings, but most of them are of a domestic scale. They're small paintings and they belong in a domestic setting. How does the curator of the municipal react to the suggestion that her gallery is not fulfilling its brief in housing the Lane paintings and should be a centre for more contemporary art? Well, I think I would agree wholeheartedly. I've always been a great believer in this gallery going ahead and being um, a collection of really modern work. Um, however, you have to take it in the context that these pictures have been closely associated with this gallery. I think for the time being, perhaps, we should leave them here. And until the matter has been satisfactorily and completely resolved, I think they should remain here, perhaps. Um, specifically because they are associated with this particular setting? Yes, just until the whole thing is sorted out, it might be the best and um, maybe cause less controversy and trouble if they were left here for the time being. Do you think ultimately that um, the 39 paintings, presuming they all return to Ireland eventually, uh, might be deposited in this particular gallery and that the more modern paintings might be moved out or that a site might be found for the actual 39 paintings? Well, I would think that that might be the ideal, that you would, for instance, um, make this uh, into, I mean, this is now a dream, <laughs> make this into a 19th century uh, collection and that you build from the ground, uh, possibly somewhere along the Liffey, maybe out the island bridge direction, somewhere along there, where you could have a wonderful uh, modern art gallery built from the ground and surrounded by a lot of um, green fields where you could have sculptures exhibited in the open air. That would be the ideal, I think. Whatever the ultimate destination of the collection, whether it be in Britain or Ireland, whether in the national, municipal, or indeed in a gallery designed exclusively for its reception, it will remain as a monument to the remarkable achievement of a remarkable man. Let us hope that the future of these paintings is in keeping with the wishes of this man. If you ask me what I think Lane would desire and wish, uh, he would wish naturally all his pictures to be here. That is no doubt, there's no question about that. But I'm very glad that an arrangement of them come to it. I don't think it's Lane's, it was Lane's wish. Yes, but then you, I think it's important to emphasize this. You, as an Englishman, um, um, chairman of the Wallace Collection, former managing director of Christie's, and all these things, you still feel we ought to have those pictures here? Well, of course, personally, if you ask me, as I, as I told Lane when we discussed it, I'd, I'd rather see them in London, because I think more people would see them. But when, if you're asking me what Lane wanted, what Lane worked for. And that's the important thing. I think that's the only thing that matters, yes. are Lane's pictures, and I think, I think his wishes should be carried out. That's what I would wish to see. And I hope if I go to heaven, I shall meet him there, because he's certain to be there, and I can tell him that all the pictures are back in Dublin. Yes.